I, one of my prayers, love you, mom and dad. Uh, one of my prayers was I'd preach revelation before they died. And so I was like, I better get on it soon. I never know. You never know. So I better get on it. <laughs> so we're going to do that. So that's where we're headed. Just to let you know, that's where we're headed in the coming weeks. Um, and, and through Christmas and then really through the next year, Revelation, my guess, will be the same, probably around a 10-month series. So that's where we're headed. But tonight, back to Genesis. See, I, I, like I said, I can just go. I can go forever on any, any, throw me a topic. It's like improv. I could just throw me a topic, I'll go for it. Rant on it for 20 minutes. But tonight, uh, tonight we're going to do Genesis. So we've got four weeks left, and, and this week... We really need to go back and do some review. We really need to understand what's going on. And I've said this many times. If you've been here since the beginning of the book, you'll know I've said this. Uh, But these last few weeks have been very applicational. And we haven't really stood back and looked theologically at what we're looking at as much because we've really been focused on, on those Joseph moments, the Judah moments, how we can give people second chances, how we can suffer well, very practical things. But we need to look back at the book and understand what the author's trying to say. So this, this section I'm doing is from chapter 45, verse 16, to 46, verse 27. And I've titled this sermon, Leaving the Land. Leaving the Land. Now, if you've been with us, you would understand, oh, leaving the land. Isn't that exactly opposite of what we've been talking about the whole time? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, because the, the promise of God was what? A land, a seed, a blessing. They're going to leave the land? That seems odd. That seems kind of against the plan of God, doesn't it? The whole plan was to give them Canaan. Abraham bought land. Jacob has land. Why are they leaving the land? And that's a good theological question. In fact, it's the very one that the original readers of Genesis would be asking. Because remember, when I said at the beginning, this book, the book of Genesis, the event of the Exodus looms large over it. Traditionally, these books are ascribed to who? They're ascribed to Moses. So Moses is writing these books after the Exodus has happened. And the event of the Exodus is literally the national identity of Israel. It is the definitive event. It's their birth. They view it that way. So everything we see in Genesis, uh, the Exodus is, is in the back of their mind. And they're trying to answer questions, the same questions we might ask. Who am I? Who, who are my people? What, what is this people? How did we come to be? And not only how did we come to be, how did some of the framework of, of our society develop? How did it come to, to the place of prominence it did? So they're asking all these questions. Hey, how did, how did the tribe of Ephraim get so big? How did Judah's tribe become the most prominent tribe? Wh- why were we ever in Egypt? Why were we enslaved there? How did we even end up there? All those questions are are hanging over the people of Israel post-Exodus. And so when Moses writes this book, there's no doubt, I'm sure these tales have been passed down. Of course, I'm sure they're very definitive tales. I'm not saying that they were just, you know, pulled up out of the blue. But my point is that they were written down because they had a message. They had a point. And the point was, who are we? 
Who are we as a people? Where did we come from? Who is this God that claims to be our God? They want to know who their God is. And that's what the book of Genesis is doing. It's giving that background. And so when we get here, you're going to see that as they're leaving the land, the author wants to make a specific point. Was God at work in them moving to Egypt? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. I mean, think about their station. They were slaves in Egypt. Their national identity prior to being taken out of slavery is that we're a slave people. We've been oppressed in how many years? 430 years they were oppressed in Egypt. It is fundamental to their identity that they are an oppressed people, that they are a slave people. And the defining event was their God taking them out of slavery. So I'll, I'll tell you, you're going to have a hard sell, aren't you? Wait, you're telling me God moved us here to be slaves for 430 years? The author of Genesis is going to say yes. God was at work. And you're going to see that in this passage tonight. Okay. Remember where we left off in the story. Joseph has revealed himself to his brother, and after all these years, they were able to chat, to talk. Remember, at the very beginning of the story, they could not speak a civil word to Joseph. And in verse 15 of chapter 45, he said, they brother, he was revealed to his brothers, and they, they talked. Which seems like an anticlimax, but it really, it's the poignancy of a family re- reunited, a family reconciled, because they're finally talking to one another. <laughs> they couldn't even speak to each other kindly before, and they're sitting down and talking. And so after that, that's where we wind up in verse 16. Here we go. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So Joseph sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. They're better men, but they're still men, right? The brothers are better people, but Joseph has to remind them, hey, don't fight on the way home. I want to see my dad. I've waited all these years. Don't mess around. Come quickly. So they all went up from Egypt, all the brothers, and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And the brothers told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. 
And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That's the joy of Jacob. His life literally is revived. Remember, he said, I'm going to go down to the grave in mourning for my son Joseph. I'm never going to stop publicly grieving for him. And all of a sudden, which is also weird to think because uh, I think the brothers are going to have some explaining to do of why Joseph has been dead all these years to their dad. But nonetheless, the joy of the moment overwhelms the whole proceeding. Because for Jacob, his beloved son is alive. And his spirit's revived and he knows, he knows I'm an old man, I'm close to death. I'll get to see my son before I go. One more time. Okay. That's the end of chapter 45, and now we move to chapter 46. And the beginning of chapter 46 is significant. It's really significant, because now Jacob is torn, isn't he? What was Jacob's promise from God? This land will be yours. But his boy is in Egypt. The son that he loves, who he's missed, is in Egypt. And, and his son's saying, come down, be with me, live with me. But Jacob knows the promise. And the promise is the land of Canaan. You think Jacob's going to leave? I don't think he would have without a word from the Lord. I don't think he would have without a word from the Lord because this was his inheritance. It's what had God had promised. And so it's imperative that God speak to Jacob directly. And he does at the beginning of chapter 46. So Israel sat out, set out excuse me, with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Beersheba, if you remember, is where Isaac had set up shop. It's where he had really lived his life. And it's the traditional southern border of the land of Israel. Right? Traditional Israel is marked from Dan to Beersheba. Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. So this is the southern border of what they call the land of Israel or what they would uh, eventually come to call the land of Israel, right? What's between Beersheba and Egypt? Desert. That's it. It's uninhabitable. It's hard journey. And it's just straight desert from Beersheba all the way to Egypt. So what they're saying, he's already at the southern border, and now he's going to have to make this hard journey, which is going to be hard for him. Remember, he's an old man. In fact, they're going to have to carry him on one of these carts. Joseph is going to have to stand him when he meets Pharaoh because J- Jacob is an old man. And so he's, he's getting ready to leave, and he sacrifices to God, and God shows up to him to speak to him. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. What does this sound like? It sounds like a prophetic utterance. This sounds like the prophets, like, like Aaron said earlier. It sounds like Isaiah. Here I am, right? That's a traditional prophetic 
reality. This is letting us know that Jacob's a prophet. He's receiving a vision from the Lord. And as a prophet, he's listening to the Lord. He says, here I am. And the Lord speaks. God said, I am God. This is not the, the best way of, it actually says, I am El. I am El, God of your fathers. Which again, we've talked about this, about the Exodus looming large. What is God's name? Well, his personal name, his covenant name is Yahweh. He doesn't refer to himself as Yahweh. We actually know in Exodus that the name Yahweh is not given to the people until it's given to Moses. God says that. He's, God says to Moses, your ancestors did not call me by this name. They did not know me by this name. I've given it to you, the people of Israel, when he enters into covenant with them. So he says, I am El, which is translated God. I am El, God of your fathers, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. See, God is saying what? No, 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 this is necessary for the promise. See, you thought you would become a great nation here in Canaan, and that was not my plan. You need to go to Egypt because I'm going to make you a great nation there. The promise of the descendants, the promise of the seed, the promise of being as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky is going to be fulfilled in Egypt. There I will make you a great nation. This is covenant language. This is promise language. And so he starts speaking to Jacob at that level. He says, Jacob, the promises will be fulfilled if you go to Egypt. But Jacob also has a personal reality, doesn't he? An intimate, personal want, desire. And the Lord speaks to him at that point too. After saying the promises will will go forward in Egypt, he says, I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. All that Jacob's wanted is to see his boy. And God tells him, go down and your boy, you'll die in the presence of your son. He will be the one to put you to rest. That's very personal and intimate. But probably most significant is that God says, I am going to be there with you. I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to stay in the land of Canaan. I will go with you to Egypt. And I will surely bring you up again. Now that's prophetic, isn't it? Because Jacob is going to die in in Egypt. Now he's not buried in Egypt, but he dies in Egypt. What's the surely bring you up again? He's talking about the Exodus. See, Israel in this place is standing in for the nation that's going to be called by his name. The nation that is going to be called Israel. I'm going to bring it up again one day. I am going to make the Exodus happen. And we've seen this illusion throughout the book of Genesis, haven't we? Remember in Genesis 15 with Abraham. And God passing through the pieces, talking about being in their midst, being in the midst of Israel. And he says explicitly to to Abraham, you're going to have a good life, Abraham. You don't have to worry. But your descendants, they'll be enslaved. They'll be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 
And we have all these allusions to the Exodus throughout the book. And now again, it's becoming real because they're actually going. And so even though this is a joyous, a happy reminder, a happy occasion for, for Jacob and, and, and um, Joseph to be reunited, at the same time, there is a reminder of what's coming. There is a, a, a suffering that is yet to happen for this people, one that they've been aware of. And of course, for the readers, they've already lived it, right? The first readers of this book, they lived it. They lived the Exodus. The first people who are hearing these stories put together in this way are, they remember what it was like to be slaves. So Jacob arose from Beersheba. Once God gives him the okay, once God tells him, this is part of the plan, Jacob, Jacob's ready to go. So he does. He departs from Beersheba. And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel. Jacob and his two sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Did I say two sons? Sorry. Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben. Hanoch and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Yamin and Ohad and Yachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohat. And Merari, the sons of Judah, Er and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva, and Eob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Zerid, and Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Hagi, Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Arodi and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imna and Ishva, and Ishvi and Bariah and their sister, Serah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. And she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim whom Azanat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Besher, and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Mupim and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazil and Guni and Yezer and Shalim. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter, Rachel. And she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Okay. 
That's the end of our passage tonight already. But what's going on here? It's almost like a mini genealogy, isn't it? It's a mini genealogy of these sons. And one thing we often do, we have a tendency because we're distant from the, from the text, distant from the Bible and understanding it a lot of times. We interpret things literally when they're not necessarily meant to be literal. Is there a literal 70 people that came down with him? Well, it even says in the text, no, I'm not including the wives specifically. If I did include the wives, it'd be more than 70. The author specifically says, I'm looking to make 70. And why? Why is that the case? Two reasons. One, 70. It's a nice, round, even number. But also, it's seven. It's a a multiple of seven. And seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of things being right as they were meant to be. And what it's saying in this moment, again, this is a theological point. Oftentimes we miss that when we read the text. This is not meant to be a historical point. It's not meant to be how we understand science or history or any of those things. It's a theological point. The point he's trying to make by saying that 70 persons went down is probably twofold. One, all of Israel went. The full number of what would become the nation of Israel, they went down. They all ended up there. So that none of Israel was left behind. None of Israel was left behind in the land of Canaan. They all went to Egypt together as one people. See, their unity is of extreme significance. Because like I told you, the story of Joseph is telling us the story of how these 12 men who seemed to hate each other became one people. How did they How did they manage that? Well, in part because of Judah's repentance and Joseph's graciousness, right? That reconciliation allowed them to become one people. Twelve tribes, but one people. But everywhere else along the line, they all split off and became different peoples, different people groups. But somehow the tribes stayed together. Their unity is paramount to them. So they all went together. And secondly is this, all the way back in Genesis 10. You may not know this, but remember, Genesis 10 is the table of nations. It's listing out where all the people went across the land. And you know how many nations are in the table of nations? It's 70. See, what that author is explaining, what he's trying to understand is that Jacob and the the people of Israel are actually a microcosm of humanity itself. They're a microcosm of what God intended for humanity to have, that he would go with them, that he would be their God, they would be his people, that he would dwell among them. That refrain shows up throughout the entire Bible. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. Israel is trying to fulfill what God intended for humanity. God is walking with them. In the same, it's it's unique, it's special, but it's also meant to be the way that he was supposed to be with the whole world. What he's doing in, in a small part for Israel was what he intended for humanity to experience. 
the 70 nations of the table of nations and the 70 persons of Israel that went down, they represent humanity. See, what the author is trying to do is he's trying to connect the story of this people to the story of what God's doing. Right? And they have a a unique claim to it, for sure. I'm not denying that. They have a unique claim for the work of God being done in and amongst them as the people of Israel. But like I said, the point is that this was meant to be for everyone. This is what God intended for humanity. And we saw how awry it all went in Genesis. How everything fell apart. And that God is now trying to do it with this people. What he wanted to do from the very beginning with all the descendants of Adam and Eve. And so the author is trying to connect that story. That even, don't you understand, people of Israel? This is the author speaking. Don't you understand, people of Israel, that even us going into the the land of our oppression, which is how they, for the rest of their existence, that's how they understand Egypt. The land of their oppression. No, don't you understand, people of Israel? God even planned that. To make us a great nation. So that we would be built up and that he could redeem us and he could pull us out. And even back here to Jacob, when our nation was nothing but a figment of imagination at this point. Even back then, God was promising, I'll take you out of the land. I will surely bring you up out of it. The author is trying to connect the story of these people to the story of their God. And I think one of the powerful things about Scripture, and I prayed it tonight, and the thing I want to communicate to you is you need to learn to interpret your story in the same way. You've got to learn to interpret the events of your life in line with who your God is. In line with the promises that God has made you. Because it's in that that you can see that God is at work. That God is present. That he, just like he said to Jacob, that he is there with you. That he will surely bring you up out of your suffering again. And the events of your life can start to, to take on the, the, the tint of, of what God is actually doing. That we wouldn't see them just from a human perspective. We wouldn't just see them from a a small human finite perspective. But that we could start to see things with an eternal reality. With a lens through which God looks at it. That even these moments, God is at work doing something And even as he's telling them, go down to Egypt, leave the land, which seems like it's the exact opposite of fulfilling the promise. We're already here, God. You're going to make us leave? You're going to make us leave the land that you promised to us? We're already here. Just give it to us. No. God's got greater plans. 
and the identity of this people is utterly shaped by the events of the Exodus. Without that event, without it happening, who knows what kind of national identity they would have even had. That event is definitive for them. Their God rescued them. And see, that seems old hat to us. That seems old hat to us because we've lived with it for thousands of years now as Christians. We forget the weight of it. Prior to the Exodus, what people could claim that their God saved them? What people could claim that their God rescued them out of slavery? To us, to some extent, yeah, maybe we've taken it for granted. It's just a normal reality. And especially in the West, where we have very little persecution, take, it's, it's easy to be, just be comfortable to not feel the level of persecution that many others in the world would for what it means to have a God that rescued them. <laughs> when you live in relative comfort, it's easy to sit here and be like, take that for granted. Yeah, yeah, he delivered me. Back to my normal everyday life where I work my job and come home and go to sleep and have plenty of food and I'll have all the clothes I need and all of that stuff but it sometimes blinds us to the eternal reality of the weight, of the gravity of what this is saying. God's at work. And that he has rescued this people and he's going to and that he promises, even at this moment, when they can't understand it, when Jacob can't understand it, God says, I will surely bring you up again. And of course, that is completely encapsulated in the ever even deeper reality of what Jesus did as the new covenant people, right? That's why the New Testament is so quick to compare what Jesus did with the Exodus, a new Exodus, that he's redeeming a people. That language is the language of Exodus. We forget that when we use words like redemption or ransom or those words. They mean something different to us now, but that is language of the Exodus. God's redeeming a people. He's taking them out of slavery, giving them freedom, giving them a life, giving them a new community and a new identity. That's the language of Exodus. We've got to learn to see our story, our own personal story, and connect it to the realities of Scripture. And if you can do that, God will give you a new perspective. He'll give you a new understanding of what he's doing in your life, where he's taking you, of who he wants you to be, of what really matters in these days, right? And what really matters with what you do with your time and how you think of people, and how you treat people. All of that only becomes understandable through the framework of understanding the type of God that we serve. And the book of Genesis, at its core, is telling us who that God is. What he set in motion. What he had intended for humanity, literally from its first day. That 
he would give us a land, a place to live, a place to set our feet upon and claim to do the work of the Lord and live life and and be blessed. That we would be fruitful and multiply that language all the way comes back from Genesis 1, Genesis 2. That we would be fruitful and multiply. That we'd have many descendants. That we would that we'd become the rulers of the earth. That we'd take care of it. That we'd do good to it. And do good to one another. And that we would be blessed. In fact, we would be so blessed that we'd even become a source of blessing for others. That was the plan for humanity. And by the end of Genesis, it looks like it's very far off from what it looked like at the beginning. And it is. That's why it looks like that. It is. But when we look at the people of Israel, when we look at the Old Testament, we see God putting forward the plan, the path through which all of those things become real to you and me today. Jesus has no context if you don't understand Jesus, the Israelite. Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Jesus in the line of Abraham. All of those things the New Testament talks about over and over and over. Without Genesis, we don't get any of it. Genesis makes Jesus make sense. Why did we even need a Jesus? Genesis 3. It's the book of foundations. It's been such a privilege to share Genesis with you guys over these last 10 months because it is, it is the book of beginnings. Everything that the rest of the Bible is going to want to explain and talk about is found in seed form in Genesis. So, my prayer is you will learn to look at your life through the lens of the author of this book. Connect it to the story of humanity, your story. Connect it to the story of this God, the God that we serve. See it from an eternal perspective. Look at it from beyond just the, the, the short brevity of your life, but from the, the look of the generations of where God is taking people. Try to live in line with that. You'll see some some amazing things in your lifetime if you attempt to do that, if you try to do that, if you try to live that out. And even when you're at the twilight of your life, God's still not done. God still has more. He has more to be done in your life. You're not checked. All of you wonderful people that I love that are on the elderly side, of of the spectrum. God, you're not checked out of ministry yet. God has more for you. You can't check out yet. We need you. This generation needs you. We need you to teach us how to love, teach us how to be good people. Don't forget that. That's what God's called us to. And and we have to teach you how to use Zoom and stuff. So we've got an important role too, but (laughs) just kidding. But it's important. It's important that we can live life together. God has a plan for us.
as a church, as individuals, as a nation, all the way up every level of human society and humanity itself. We find those truths here in the scriptures. And in Genesis, I hope that this series, I know I'm kind of like treating it like a closing. I've still got like three weeks. I'll still give you those three weeks. But but my closing is this. (laughs) My closing is this. I hope that in Genesis that you've seen that this God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the, the, the books that people are, tend to be more reticent to read. They're more, they're more like, oh, I don't know if I need it. I, I've got the New Testament. That's my testament. This is that same God. And all the character all the grace, all the love, all the judgment, which is true in the New Testament too, all the hope, all the holiness, all of that has been there from Genesis 1. And he has not changed. We fit ourselves into this story. And the Bible will come alive to you. You know I love the Bible. The Bible will come alive to you when you stop looking at it as a book of, of, of stories, just disparate stories, and start seeing it as your history. Because it's the history of you. It's not just the history of Israel. It's not just the history of humanity. It's your history. It's your story. It's the story of God's relationship with you. And in it, we can see ourselves. We see a mirror for ourselves. When you truly accept that I'm reading about my people, these are my people, the people of God, that's when the Bible truly becomes life for you. Because it's not just the story of some people over there. It's your story got to learn to read it in that light and then it will come alive Joseph and Judah and Jacob they're my brothers they're my fathers they're my ancestors and when I read about them I learn about my own life the power of the scriptures because these are real people not just characters these are real people the people of God and so we too add our voices we add our voices to the chorus of those who have come before and been the people of God and if you can learn that you're part of that you're part of that symphony you're part of that truly Christianity that's that's the life of Christianity that's the, the fervor, that's the, the zeal, the, the energy that we're all united by his spirit. A people of God united by his spirit now in the new covenant. All right, that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is the prayer that God has prayed for every one of us, that he has enacted for every one of us since Adam and Eve. May God give you a land 
a seed in the blessing.